Ahur Janaka. I hope this finds you well. I was in the midst of preparing a very different podcast for today, one that I'll complete in the next day or two. We really should talk about that very young man who was just selected the incarnate form of the Bodhisattva Bodhge in Mongolia. It's an important, fascinating story. We'll also finally work out how Tibetan Buddhists and their compatriots think about reincarnation, particularly bodhisattvas and lamas. But I think we would be remiss if we did not turn our attentions as a community and as human beings to the pressing matters in the news. We can, of course, choose to keep our conversation out of politics or anything for that matter so controversial so very worldly. But I'd suggest that that's not our best purpose in this life together, particularly a life that learns from the history of traditions and values humanism. So I'm not going to turn away like a nivrati yoga, our renunciate friends who make every matter wholly spiritual, but rather pravrati, we're going to turn towards and allow what we learn together to inform the real world. Let the world inform us and make our decisions by engaging deeply, even when things are difficult to talk about or painful to share. Maybe particularly it's when things are hard. Maybe that's exactly when we should talk about them and about what we can learn together to become more reflective more engaged human beings. Events this week have called us to the yoke. That's the moment when in the great epic Mahabharata, the horses are yoked to the chariot, promises are made. There's no turning back. There's only turning forward or going home. This is one of the very earliest definitions of yoga. You've probably heard me talk about it before. But it's not unimportant given what's happening in our world. You've noticed it's on fire, literally, and politically at home with dysfunctional politics, committed, it seems, to little more than grifting, posturing, and ensuring that the republic itself fails, an entire political party now, once merely disagreeable and wrong about nearly everything, since at least Eisenhower, now wholly committed, it seems, to nothing literally to nothing but their own grievances, nihilism, conspiracy, and the threats of violence that are aimed at destroying every norm, every rule, every custom, every tradition that might keep the lights on, a country capable of governing itself, because we do have real differences, and we do need to talk about them, and we do need to come to some way in which, with half a loaf, we each get something and live together. And now, now there is war in the Middle East and the horror and tragedy that has so far ensued is unfortunately not beyond our belief. We really do know what human beings are capable of doing to one another. That too is a story of yoga. Disappointingly, in the last few days, Student groups at Harvard have also conflated the plight of the Palestinians with the vile politics of Hamas. This is not merely wrong-headed, youthful folly, politics gone awry. It is misjudgment. 
The president of Harvard has been far too slow in condemning any notion of this moral equivalency or condoning what has been said as under the rules of free speech. Indeed, these students are free to express their views, and I think we should tell them they are dead wrong. They need not be silenced. They need to be discredited for failing to see that terrorism, murder, and war brought for the purposes of exterminating the Jewish people and the Jewish state cannot be equivocated. Their privilege to speak need not be censored. Rather, their views, their more than regretful position, must be rebuked in favor of a clear and reasoned argument that makes the case that we must stand for the dignity of life itself that there is no justification for a politics of nihilism, none, and for the inescapable and obscene position that Hamas has leveled against Israel. So far, this sounds like little more than politics, but I tell you, I think there's more at stake. I shudder and weep with you all. But the horrors of this war must not remain unspeakable. They must not remain unseen. They must take each of us to the core of our being, where we must insist on no moral equivalencies, nor plead a kind of both-sidesism. This is not about irreconcilable political positions. Rather, it is about what must not be tolerated if we are to be human. This is always a hard thing for us to admit. We want to find differences and room for differences. We want to hear at least two sides of every story. And we seek, we even pray, though I'm not the praying sort, for peace. We know that we must have honest and serious conversations, many of them difficult and causing us to consider, reconsider, even alter our positions. At the very least, we hope to be in a position to learn, to listen, to come to better understanding and find ways forward that have a sense of justice held close. We try not to come to deal breakers and tipping points. But perhaps that is where we are. When we are called to the yoke, the matter before us has reached the point where the conversation insists we take sides or at the very least declare our positions. Now in certain traditions, like our friends the Buddhists, there is the claim that any and all violence is beyond all justification, reason, or cause. It is thought that non-injury, ahimsa, will eventually triumph, that turning the other cheek is the only true recourse, because eventually karma will prevail. Karma's justice may take eons, but the Buddhist claim is that we must not resort to that which will only cause more trauma, a more hurtful future. It's a principled stance. We know where they stand. And for those who take this position, I will only say that I have hope for you because you are a principled person. But I also hope you have the sense to thank those who do not agree with you because they may save you, you and yours, from what people will do if they are determined to destroy you if they have chosen only brutality, murder, and ruinous rejection of a shared humanity. There is an alternative view, at least as I see it, and that is to commit 
Commit to what? Well, not to yuyutsavaha. That's how the Bhagavad Gita calls those nihilists who are eager for a fight. But rather to become stira. Stira. This is the word for stalwart. And the hero of Mahabharata is called Yudhishthira. Firm and stalwart, compact. Sometimes stira means calm, firm, unwavering, durable. It means to be lasting. It means to be steadfast and resolute, to steal one's heart, to take courage, to be trustworthy and faithful. Yudhi means the battle. And so to be Yudhishthira is to be stalwart for the battle, to stay in the fray. But to be stira is not to be stubborn. It is not to become that which we despise but it is to become deeply convicted in one's own heartfelt commitments. It is to take courage in a shared humanity. So Yudhishthira, our prince of the Pandavas, this is not merely a name designating that king who will lead his brothers to battle against their nihilist, destructive cousins. Yudhishthira is himself a value proposition. He is an archetype, an alternative to the conscientious objector for whom any violence is beyond justification. Yudhishthira is that stalwart commitment to answer the call to the yoke, sometimes unhappy and disconsolate, but utterly serious in the decision that must be made. And that decision is, this must not be allowed to stand these actions cannot be permitted. They must not be condoned. We cannot make peace with those who would annihilate all of us. This is a difference that makes our differences no longer tolerable, unallowable, unbearable. Wow, what it takes to reach such a place in life. But we will not be indifferent. We will not sit by idly and permit the world to devolve into a further degradation and despoilment of humankind. The choices our adversaries here have made are by definition evil itself. What Hamas has done is repulsive to human nature. It is more than depraved and repugnant. It is beyond the pale. So we will not grieve for those who do not warrant our grief, as Krishna so plainly puts it in the Gita, so painfully. But we will rise to answer the call to the yoke and support those who must stand. Now this will demand from us that we too not become the evil that is so baneful, so malignant and obscene. Mine is not a position I will defend as morally superior but rather is merely necessary because the alternative must not be allowed to abide. This is not the first time nihilists have taken to war to exterminate a people. I feel confident that Israel will bring Hamas to its knees. It will be a long and bloody conflict and thousands of truly innocent people will suffer and be injured and be killed, and myriad lives will be ruined. 
it is impossible to justify, but no one can possibly wish this on any people, certainly not on the Palestinians, because they have been ruled by a regime that cannot be permitted to carry out its explicitly stated mission of annihilation. Okay, so if we can, let's turn to our traditions of yoga. Consider both of these claims I've made. That is, that this kind of nihilism, this brutality and cruelty, plainly stated, enacted violently, must be resisted and defeated, even if that involves violence too. And our second proposition, that we must do our level best not to become that which we genuinely detest. Yoga, of course, by definition, means to engage deeply with seriousness and soulfulness, the very nature of our being. At its best, it means not to turn away from the world in some kind of soporific introversion, claiming the liberation that extricates or excises us from the world's problems. Yoga, in fact, is decided commitment, a commitment not only to stay in the world, but to do whatever we can to make this life more livable for others, for ourselves, more compassionate, more caring. And because it's only under those more civilizing, shared human concerns that we can, of course, explore our hearts, engage our needs, query our souls, ask who we are, because what we want from this brief, precarious human life is a chance. Now, in the Gita, yoga appears in myriad definitions. One must not forget that yoga is kausalyam. This means engage for the sake of making something commendable, something that enriches, empowers, something that secures and pursues and supports life itself. Kusala is goodness, not in the moral sense, but in the sense of being helpful, of being skillful, being concerned with how life actually twists and turns. The predicaments and circumstances will all put us at risk, and what we can do to make those situations more bearable, more skillful and livable, simply better for all. Yoga is kausalyam. It is skill in thought, intention, and activity. So it's a call, then, to a determined decency, so that we don't forget ourselves, so that we commit with heart and put our humanity first, and never forget that this, this which we share as our human nature, must come first. In order to create such a yoga, Krishna invites us to be yoked to awareness, he says, in that awareness, we will learn how to become more skillful. Yoke yourself to the battle, he says. And to that end, yoke yourself to yoga, for yoga is skillfulness in actions. So let's review this definition and see if we can apply it to ourselves, to the current situation. Yoga, he says, is self-yoging. It's a particular effort an effort to remain human, to be skillful, to not lose our souls, in order to win a goal. And in this case, the goal must be that such nihilism, such cruelty and brutality 
can warrant no justification. We are going to yoke ourselves with spirit, for that is our instrument. We will gird ourselves for an action. We will be in a course of action. We will move ourselves through a course of action and then to a further goal. So yoga will imply this difficult effort and its process. It will ask each of us to commit to it. It will involve instruments and decisions. It will be a course of action chosen and taken. And above all, it must have, in this case particularly, the prospect of a meaningful, humanizing goal. Dare I say it, this is a teaching that invites us to invoke a true sense of commitment, of discipline, of conduct and cultivation. We will exercise rather than inoculate ourselves. We will not indoctrinate or limit ourselves, but rather take up with will and intention and heartfelt self-consideration the very question, who do we want to be? Will we allow this world to burn? We must try to see this current situation, I think, in our world as a matter of yoga and ask ourselves, what will it take from individuals, communities, and governments to give all of us a chance to survive and flourish, share this fair planet? I'm going to consider now a wee bit of political science that takes us deeper into this definition of yoga, what it means to yoke oneself with spirit. If we're able to be participants in sharing values and compelling sides, we're going to have to understand the intersection between these histories and how these teachings can help us. Yoga, in a sense, is a rule-based world order theory. It's a way of saying, here are a system of norms and values. This describes how the world ought to work, not actually how it does work, but how we would want it to work. Yoga is aspirational. And in that sense, it's idealistic. In that period right after the Second War, when it was transcribed into a series of documents like the UN Charter and the Declaration for Human Rights and so on, in these places, it didn't stop people from doing horrific things. It didn't stop the Vietnamese from torturing American prisoners. It didn't stop Americans at Abu Ghraib from torturing Iraqis. It certainly hasn't prevented Russians from torturing Ukrainian prisoners either. So all of these signatories to the Declaration of Human Rights, among them China, Cuba, Iran, all of them have deteriorated somehow into parity. Nevertheless, these are declarations, and so is yoga, a declaration of commitment. And the documents before us in our recent history have influenced real behavior in a real world. For example, you know, Soviet dissidents yoked themselves to these declarations to embarrass their government by pointing out human rights languages and treaties that Moscow had signed and yet didn't respect. So even fighting brutal or colonial wars, there's been some effort to create a discipline to create some sense 
of the rules. Whether they tried to abide by them, avoiding, say, civilian casualties, for example, they at least felt remorseful when they failed to do so. When Americans mistreated Iraqis, they were court-martialed, convicted. They were sent to military prisons. The Brits still agonize over their past in Northern Ireland and the French over theirs in Algeria, or at least I hope they do. You know, when Hamas surprised attacked Israeli civilians, these were blatant rejections of a rule-based world order, much like the Russians in Ukraine. And it heralded something new. Both aggressors have sophisticated, militarized, modern forms of terrorism. They're not apologetic. They're not embarrassed about any of this. They are, by definition, terrorists, not fighting conventional wars, not obeying any laws of war, but instead deliberately creating fear and chaos among civilian populations, including their own. So although these terrorist acts are usually associated with small revolutionary movements or even clandestine groups, in this case, this is terrorism, now is simply a way of fighting wars. So even though, for example, Russia is a sovereign state, a permanent member of the UN Security Council, it began deliberately targeting civilians in Syria sometime, I think, in 2015, including power stations, water plants, hospitals, medical facilities, all hit in a single month in 2019. These were unquestionably war crimes. Those who chose those targets knew they were war crimes. Some of the hospitals had shared coordinates with the UN even before being hit and Russian and Syrian governments used that information to target the hospitals. These are just the facts. Now, Hamas is not a sovereign state, but it is the government, such as it is in Gaza, and it has the full backing of the Iranians, who are a sovereign state. It has funding from Qatar, itself a sovereign state. And since 2006, it's the de facto ruling party, a self-governing territory since the Israelis withdrew in 2005. But here's the point. Hamas does not see itself as part of any kind of order. When it launched on Saturday its attacks, it appears to have been well-planned and well-organized, designed to spread civilian terror and create chaos. They deployed missiles and drones, including kamikaze drones of the kind now used in Russia and Ukraine, teams of men with guns. They did hit a few military outposts, but they murdered more than 200 people at a musical festival devoted to peace. They chased down children, the elderly, and in some towns they went from house to house just looking for people to murder. They abducted young women. They beat them unconscious. This is a war crime as old as the Iliad and as defined as the Mahabharata's nihilism. Hamas and its Iranian backers and the Russian allies 
All of them run nihilistic regimes whose goal is to undo whatever remains of any rules-based world order. Instead, they will put anarchy in its place. They do not even try to hide their war crimes. They wear them as a badge of honor. They film them. They circulate them online. Their goal is not to gain territory or to engage an army, but to create misery and anger to eradicate a population. And this they have done not only to Israelis, but to each other. They have come to anticipate a massive retaliation. Indeed, that retaliation has begun. And hundreds, if not thousands of civilians will now be victims too, because they have chosen nihilism. Of course, I'm not suggesting that democracies led by the United States and a lot of them don't bear much of the blame here, either for refusing to enforce anything resembling order when they could, or for violating the rules themselves. Bush condoned the interrogation of black sites and torture during the war on terror. Obama accused the Syrians of using chemical weapons and didn't stop them when they did. Trump went out of his way to pardon American war criminals and continues to advocate extrajudicial murders, among them implying that the former chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff deserves to be executed. The extreme voice of politics, including political figures who explicitly seek to undermine a judiciary and the rule of law, all of these are openly advocating their own forms of nihilism. No one can excuse what happened this past Saturday and what continues to happen and to unfold before our eyes. It seems we are headed into a world in which there is no order, no rules base, nothing normative, nothing at all we can imply about a shared humanity. As outdated as the Pax Americana post-World War II order now seems to be, we have nothing better to replace it. Open brutality is now celebrated in international conflicts. It may be a long time before anything better replaces it. But now is the time to answer the call to the yoke. It is yoga staha, the time to stand in yoga. That means to take up our commitments, to live with awareness and spirit, to advance and inquire, to make every decision we can in that fullness of heart and generosity of mind that gives every human being an alternative and an option for life. But what we must never do is indulge false equivalences or embrace the cruelty and the detestable politics of annihilation. There is no discipline, no choice. There is nothing stalwart for the battle there. And so let us turn in contemplation to that character like Yudhishthira, that troubled and sorrowful prince who must make the decision that nihilism 
must not stand. That this eradication that his cousins commit to in their political folly must not be allowed to abide. This is not personal. This is about principle. This is about who we want to be as human beings. The trauma, the atrocity, the horror lies before us. Now, how to regain our humanity? How shall we become Yudhishthira, stalwart in our principles, valued in our judgments, disciplined in our conduct, answering to our hearts in good faith, persevering, taking courage, and stealing one's heart to do what's right. May it be so. May the lessons of yoga reach into the hearts of all of those who seek a better world. Let us keep faith and trust, take courage and firm resolve. Let us ensure ourselves and each other that we will abide in yoga, in the commitment to engage a shared humanity for the sake of a worthwhile future. It's been a hard one, Marjanika. I hope it's been worth your time. Thanks so much. I'll talk soon.